Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. Hey guys, this is Ruben from Dub, and I'm here with Alita, and we just had a really great experience shooting a really short social media video here at HubSpot's Inbound event in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, what was that experience like for you? Shooting the, speaking or shooting the? Well, basically, I'm actually just kind of desperate for a little bit of feedback and sort of data, because we came up with this idea called the Dub 100 where we shoot 100 social media videos, and that's how we connected. So we yeah. connected on LinkedIn, and I think we sort of mentioned you because you're a hotshot here in the HubSpot ecosystem, so we wanted to get your attention, and we did. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, what was that like being on the receiving end yeah, of that okay. yeah, short right. social yeah, media yeah, yeah, video? Yeah. Okay, so it, it was super fun. I mean, you guys are super professional and know exactly what you're doing really quickly, and the creative ideas that you came up with really quickly, you know, how you're gonna speed up frames and stuff like that, yeah. I thought that was really fun. Yeah. And I love shooting video. It makes me really happy, and you know, just like you, you said, before Ruben it's like that thing about how you can humanize that communication you can't get that anywhere else there's no amount of copy that you can write that's going to do the same as what video is going to do so it was really fun so thanks yeah of course and you're here because of a speaking opportunity right I am so talk to me about that Alrighty, so I mean, I came to Inbound like two years ago and I saw cool. Michelle Obama speak and um, that was really fun and it was really amazing and just seeing and, and the vibe and uh, here and I just remember thinking to myself, there's, you know, going to all of these sessions, I was like, these are sessions that I can deliver. These are sessions mm. that I have so much to say about and that I even have more I have more than something to just say about this because of the environment that we work in and this transformational environment that we work in we're more than just tech we piece things together and so I applied for two years to get in here to speak so that was really fun when I got that email saying hey yeah you know we'd love to have you so I was really happy to be here so that the speaking experience specifically today was great this is content so I prepared this talk exclusively for inbound the time title of it is the loyalty agenda slowing down to speed up Mm -hmm. and why it's a leading growth philosophy for business and for change slowing down to speed up so that's definitely a paradox which i like i really connect to that because it sounds like it's more about being mindful being meaningful being you know sort of branding for longevity but speak to me about that a little bit Yeah, it's like, I mean, there's so much to it and it's something that, you know, it's a philosophy that goes so deep and it completely transforms companies and the result, we've seen a 43% growth over two years and we've seen, you know, decrease in efficiencies in operating costs as well. So people, normally they kind of freak out. They're like, what, you want me to slow down? But, you know, we've got these the board they need us to hit these targets and things like that or you know or we've just made this change in the company it just needs to roll out really fast but what can happen is if you're getting direction and this is about this is really about that direction part of it so if you're just getting direction from the top and feeding that information down constantly you're not taking time to slow down to think about the people who you're actually making these changes for and that is for your staff and that is for your customers and when you miss this part because you're constantly running all the time running really fast then you miss the opportunity to listen you miss the opportunity to change your roadmaps driven by feedback you miss the opportunity to be creative and if you're not creative and you want to innovate 
those things can't happen. It's just impossible. You're just innovating for innovation's sake. It's not you're not innovating with purpose and creativity. You're not solving anybody's problems. Well, I think the realm that I like to live in is quality over quantity, and yeah. I don't want to sacrifice quality in any in any regard. I think quality is very important, but I think that I'm constantly looking for data constantly looking for feedback, whether it's the content that we put out or whether it's the software platform that we're building. But my question for you is, how can entrepreneurs, how can folks that work at great, fast-growing companies, how can they actually pitch the vision of slowing down to speed up? What are some tactical ways that they can do that? Is it, you know, different sort of metrics on sales, on closes? You know, the board has goals. They need to maximize shareholder value. So what is it that we can all do to actually make this much more tactical? So if we just look at it from a loyalty perspective and we talk about retention and loyalty of our existing customers, companies that increase their loyalty of their customers by 5% can see an increase in revenue from anywhere from 25 to 95 percent so i think you know if we just talk about the customer loyalty side of things the the finance stacks up it completely stacks up then we talk about we can look at efficiencies and return on investment on staffing you know when our people are happier they're going to stay longer they don't get sick they're more creative the solutions that they roll out are better so from that operational perspective then we see that stack up financially as well and we always say that you need to tie metrics of slowing down in towards financial outcomes and that's really where people will kind of get mixed up and that's where they get scared of this because it does take some courage to adopt this philosophy yeah they really kind of get a bit like what are we supposed to do we can't we've got quotas to hit how can we how can we even slow down and yeah I mean when you look at it from that perspective I think that the the business case like stacks up we see people less sick we see people happier our our cost of you know acquiring new staff our cost of acquiring customers like hey I even think like from another perspective like it costs five times more to acquire a new customer than it does to retain an old one so like let's look at our efficiencies in our marketing there's so many different levers that can be pulled to adopt this philosophy um, that really help to stack up a really successful business case for it well yeah I mean I think one of the paradoxes here is that I think there's maybe two that I can think of right now, which is, number one, is that typically in an employment situation, it's the squeaky wheels, quote unquote, that get the oil, right? So it's the folks that are complaining or that are struggling or that have some sort of an issue. But the, the high performers, the ones that are doing really well, they might not speak up, right? And they might put be putting themselves in a high stress situation where they might get burned out. Yeah. Right? And that's the worst thing that you want to have happen because someone that isn't necessarily a good fit at the company, maybe they need to go through that process and maybe change gears or go through a different process or even change companies. But it's the high performers, sometimes the closers, sometimes the sales staff, also applies to support, marketing, operations, finance, etc. How can we have better metrics to empower folks like that or folks in leadership positions to get those more meaningful metrics though? You know, we talked about increasing customer loyalty, increasing customer happiness, decreasing customer churn rate. These things are, they're all metrics. They're all metrics that we all use. The KPIs are what's our conversion rate, what's our churn rate, what's our lifetime value, how long are people sticking around for, and so on and so forth. What are the next generation of KPIs that we should be thinking about? 
It's such a good question. So where we see the changes start to happen is across four areas of the business and it's those really solid roadmaps that every business has their foundations built on. There's marketing and communications, there's sales, there's our HR and there's our team and then there's our operations roadmap. And when we slow down enough to hear what people are really saying and get their ideas on how to solve their biggest problems in their departments instead of feeding them down strategies, then we start to see real changes um, changes across that. So like just an example is, I mean, the measurement tools and the measurement is always, we have like an anchor method that we say. We say to use mixed methodologies in your measurement. One of them is, of course, that financial side of things, that financial measurement. But the other measurement is usually what we use as an anchor method is our net promoter score. Mm, and it's yeah. one a net promoter score. Like, I mean, I asked today in the, my talk, who hates, you know, net promoter score? And about five hands went up. And I was like, that's cool. That's fine. Because <laughs> um, I'm here to, to change your mind about that mm. and why it can actually be really helpful and the problem with the net promoter score today is that people only use that one metric and they only use it in a transactional environment they don't gather data in real time and definitely not throughout the whole business because it's not just your customers that should be giving you that net promoter score shift as well and it shouldn't just be like when that product's delivered or when that job has finished it needs to be across different parts of the entire customer journey depending on what you actually want to improve same as your entire staff journey you need to be thinking about it like that and you need to have these mixed methods nps being your anchor method that's the thing that we're constantly trying to shift and we need to match it together with other methodologies like our customer satisfaction score or our customer effort score. And I want to also say this about net promoter score. Is that you said customer effort score. Yeah. What is that? So let's say that we. I want to find out. Um, so I know that a, a key part of customer experience is um, the returns. So how easy, how much effort was it for you to return your product to us to, for you to get a refund? Mm very difficult not very difficult you know we want to understand so that we can then make the strategic decisions about how we can optimize that part of the customer's journey and again like coming down to read that data analyze that data get more feedback from the customers and then get ideas from the team that's doing those returns and get ideas from the customers who have given you that bad feedback on how they think it would be really great collect that data and information find common areas and find common data points that are telling you that this is what you should do to improve that yeah yeah I think the theme here is you know data comes in many formats I mean the first type of data is positive data why are people signing up why are they sticking around but then I think the other form of valuable data is why are people leaving what is the issue employees customers you know partners so I think that's really important so important and I call this like I, I see brands do this all the time where they run strategies or they run an NPS or they run a they run different surveys and they look at what I call these vanity metrics. Mm, yeah. It's like what's going to make me feel good so that I can go and say to our board that we're doing really well. It's like but what if you looked at the areas that you really really suck? Yeah. And what if you drove your improvement from there? And that's why in the net promoter score we've got our detractors, we've got our passives and we've got our promoters. And normally we don't really 
look at we definitely don't look at our promoters as being like the people that we're going to drive great innovation from because they already love us like let's whatever we're doing let, let's just keep doing more of that for them and then like let's look at our passives let's see how much information they can give us because they're kind of on the fence and they're kind of like they could be on the fence some of them usually the passives are reasonably positive as well it's just like you know they're those people that are always like I'm just going to give you an H because there's always room to improve but then we really want to we get our juice out of our angriest and most upset customers Customers or the customers who never purchased from us. Have you ever run a survey to ask, hey, why didn't you buy from us? And get that feedback because then later on down the track, I'm going to be able to bring those people back because I can show them that I've listened. I can show them that I've made those changes so that we can be a great company for those people as well. Yeah, I mean, well, that takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of courage to be able to do that because usually I think as marketers and maybe sales folks or business developers, we like to get the data that sort of boosts us up and makes us feel good. Vanity data. That's exactly Vanity what data. it is. Yeah. You know? And it's unfortunate yeah. because we're missing out the real evolutionary data that can really improve us as individuals, as companies, as platforms, as products. So I think that's yeah. a really important point. Yeah, don't gamify your loyalty metrics. Do mm. not gamify them because there is no value in that. You will not transform from there. All you're doing is inflating your ego. And if that's what you're there for a job, or if that's what you're wanting to see in your reporting, then you've got a massive problem. Yeah, yeah. So you have a lot of passion for this for this topic, <laughs> yeah. obviously, and yeah. I can sense that and I can feel yeah. that. And, and I love that, and I'm definitely learning from this. What is your origin story? What brought you here today? I've worked for some really big tech companies, and what I know that tech companies do really bad is help people to actually use their software to the full capacity. You know, you spend so much money on tech and you end up using like 20% of it. And tech um, companies have usually have a really bad loyalty and retention rate like tech companies have one of some of the lowest NPSs around the world I know some tech companies that are really proud about bragging about a plus four NPS score yes plus four Um, that's really exciting Um, I'm looking at a plus 75 and I'm like what else can we do to get better but really so how did I get here was through seeing this as a really big problem and I worked for some really big tech companies, you know, multi-billion dollar tech companies in a senior position. And I kept wondering why we couldn't retain these customers and why they weren't using the software to the best of their ability and then telling us that the software couldn't do this stuff. The software could do it because, well, and the salespeople were selling this great dream, like look at all these great automation programs that you can run off the back of this software and it's going to fix all of your problems and it's going to do all this stuff and then we give them this piece of kit that's kind of out of the box, we do the integrations and then nothing else happens. They go back to using the software at a, like at a 20% rate, mm. if that, and then getting mad at the software because the software didn't work. But the problem really is, is that people that we were selling it to post-sales process had no idea how to think about their customers to be able to apply strategies to enable them to use that software better to fill customer gaps. Then they see some bright, shiny thing and they're like, well, this software says that we're going to get this kind of uplift if we use it, so let's just buy that piece of kit. And you just keep buying tech for tech's sake. And I got to this point where I'm like, I I can't keep selling this software. I I can't keep doing this because people spending millions of dollars on a piece of kit 
that isn't changing them from what they were doing the time before, mm. but they're bought into the dream. And that's what tech providers are really good at, is selling you the dream, which is amazing. But really the dream is on the output. And yeah. once you come out of, you know, you work with a marketer and they've come out of a marketing degree, those marketing degrees are so outdated and they're not functional or foundational for what we actually need today. And I changed the way that I was working at some point. And I was, once I had this idea that I was like, I think this is the problem. Actually, the idea came because I slowed down for the first time in my career after 10 years. I went into the desert with, my, with a DSLR and um, I just started taking photos of um, landscape and Uluru and um, all of our amazing stuff in Australia. And I had no phone reception for three days. And I was like, what am I doing here? Why is this so hard? Why is this so frustrating? Why am I seeing these great customers come in who have all this motivation and then three months later they're mad they're really angry what do you need to do and it was like you know it's that epiphany in the desert moment where i was well, like it's a walk it's a walkabout <laughs> yeah it was it's a walkabout, walkabout yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so i'm like you got to teach people how to like milk it you know you got to teach people how to get the most out of it that yeah. they can get mm -hmm. you know and and you need to show them how to plug holes in their business using the software that they have and not get um, distracted by shiny syndrome or some kind of guru that they listen to on the internet who told them that if you follow my framework that you're going to get all this stuff and it's no, people need to be taught how to think again. And they need to be taught how to think about their customers and they need to be able to provide strategies to help to fill those customer gaps. Um, and, you know, I guess it also depends, when we talk about the internal stuff, it depends on, like, what, who you define as your customer for that project, really. So, mm. you know, we've done transformations, everything from email marketing automation from the, the, from the top end, what happens when that customer comes to our site and we nurture them through to making their first purchase then post-purchase how do we nurture them through to making their second purchase and actually we call it application-based training because we don't just train you we're going to help you and to support you on the implementation of it but we're not going to do it for you because that's not empowering that's a typical right. agency model where mm -hmm. people are like they're keeping all the skills to themselves and there's that's not sustainable and that's not what makes people happy because you don't go into work to be a pencil pusher yeah yeah, and then like on the other side of things is because we're helping people to regenerate ideas and really frame problems um, using one of our methodologies, which is design thinking, we even have gone into the space of helping people to redevelop their um, entire training programs for talent retention. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's not our core competency. Our core competencies are... Um, customer experience digital marketing but when those ideas or those problems are being framed like that all we need to do is show people how to think and then we can help them to use the tech better in order to help them to achieve their outcomes so i guess i have two questions come to mind so the first thing is can you expound a little bit upon design thinking oh yeah totally all right, so it's a six-part framework and it starts off with really defining what the problem is. And, and this is the problem with people defining problems. The problem usually comes from the CEO, not the person who actually has that problem. Mm. So what we do is we like to define um, who skeptics are, who are the people who are like, this just really sucks, this, just, this thing, it just really sucks and it's never going to work and I think it's terrible and we should have gone in this direction. And then we find our fence sitters who are like, I think it could work, but there's a few problems with it and like if we did this stuff I think it could be better and then we've got what we call our heroes who are the people who really love it mm. we define our problem 
understanding the spectrum and the landscape of those three kinds of people. That's where we start with defining our problem. Then we empathise with them and really dig deep into like what that problem actually means for them, why it's really frustrating for them. We start to design personas and things around that. Then we go into this space of ideation. What are the ideas that we can use in order to help us to solve these problems? Then we go into a research phase, which is our validation. How do we actually validate some of our ideas and our solutions and how do we refine those ideas and solutions to being like maybe three that really work for people Mm. and that people have voted on collectively? Because one of the biggest problems, again, with rolling out a strategy is adoption. Mm. I don't believe this is going to work. This isn't really what I really want to do um, this actually is going to make the problem worse but because some CEO or somebody you know in a leadership team has told you that this is our great idea because this is what we sat down and with the board meeting and our leadership team and this is what we told you that it's going to work then you have a real big adoption problem and that's a, one of the biggest things that we see with companies is like how are people adopting new strategies new technology mm. and new solutions then we go into developing a prototype then we test these three different prototypes we test them um, and we find out which one is going to have the best success of actually solving the problem before we refine it and then scale got it so that's a hefty offering that you provide i mean that's that's a lot of value that you're providing which is really really impressive we mentioned in a previous conversation that as companies we go through our evolution and what we start doing is not what we end up doing what did you start doing how did you acquire your first batch of clients and what did you do for them and how has that changed now? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm no stranger to sales and I love sales. I think it's so, uh, the thrill of the chase makes me really excited and knowing who we can, you know, bring new transformations to. But how this company really started was, I will go and going to, you know, made a whole bunch of calls to people that I had worked with or were working with and saying, hey, you know that software that you bought, I'm consulting now and I can, and let's, I can help you to roll out strategies. What happened then was um, I ended up doing the work for them and because I didn't know how to transfer knowledge at that point really properly. So I would finish up these transformation programs, I'd get everything implemented and I'd see this and then I'd see this. Mm. And then they'd just kind of flatline. And is that from the adoption standpoint or is that from an efficacy standpoint since it was not being nurtured? It was not being nurtured. Mm. It was an efficacy standpoint. They didn't know how to improve. Mm. They didn't know because those skills that I had in my head on knowing how to improve those things was they were still with me. And I got to this point where I was like, there's something wrong here. The programs are great and they're just growing and they're kind of like going like that and then they're flatlining and there's something there's something wrong. I'm, I'm still creating a problem. So I ended up calling all of, like, and the clients, you know, they were happy with the work that I'd done, but it was still, I wasn't empowering them. So I ended up calling them all and I said, hey, listen, I'm like, um, I've still got access to your Google Analytics and I've seen that you've kind of flatlined and we got this massive growth and it's not going anywhere else. And like I can see, it's, it's supportive, like we've done a great job and, and you've got more clients coming in than ever, but you're at a point where you, you need to do something else. So, but I don't want to come and run another project for you. What if I could teach you how to think 
and produce like I do and help you to actually become your own consultant and strategic mm. thinker within your business? And the answer was yes across the board. Mm. And from that day forward, we became a training academy. So now we've got um, an amazing team of consultants and trainers um, who all come from industry and we have curriculum developers. We're not a consultancy. We offer consulting services as part of the training. We don't offer implementation services, but we help them to thrive, think and do better. Got it. So what were the war stories in getting those first clients from a sales perspective? Did you, was it a very quick transition or did it really take time for you to get your messaging and your collateral and your business model and then sort of ramp up period and then an acquisition of clients? I'm always curious to hear that story because in that process, in that transition process, that's where a lot of the struggle is, but it's also where a lot of the beauty is because in going through that struggle of not getting the sales that you want and having you know personal sort of you know savings run out and runways dry up, <laughs> that you know you have to be creative, and yeah. sometimes it turns into desperation, yeah. which leads oh, us bad. astray. It's a bad place, and people can sense that you can't sell, you can't close, you can't innovate. But other times it ends into creativity, innovation, um, success. Yeah. Obviously, with you, it was the latter. <laughs> yeah, it was, and I'm really happy with where we are today. So I didn't leave my existing job without having a client. There you go. So I don't, you know, there's always, you know, take the leap of faith, but like take a calculated leap of faith, be considered about the risk that you're going to take. And that's what design thinking helps you to do. Mm. It helps you, you know, that prototyping and that testing phase helps you to be calculated in your risks before scaling. But one of the things that I was taught by somebody a long time ago was one of the most valuable lessons that I had in starting a company, which was, we do it a little bit differently today, but it was this, get paid to produce. Understand what somebody wants, book that client, produce what they need, and then deliver that. Mm. Don't go and deliver something that somebody's told you that they won't pay for. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the most valuable lessons that I ever had, and it completely de-risked what I was doing from the days of startup. So now for folks that have um, platforms, products, software, physical goods, you can't start selling overnight. You can't get that first client because you haven't made the product yet or you haven't built the tech yet. So give some advice on what folks can do during that transition process. If they're out of place and they want to make the jump that they've always wanted to do, but then they need to build something in order to sell it, how can they parallel track themselves, de-risk, get the calculation going so that they ultimately mitigate fail factors? Yeah. So one of them is looking at a diversified business model, um, starting off like what else could you potentially do to get some bank going on? But if you're okay um, and you just need to, and you just want to develop this tech, it's funny, I was talking to um, an agency yesterday, a HubSpot agency, and they said, hey, you know, we've got this piece of tech. I know that they've been working on it for at least two years and they've evolved it, evolved it, evolved it, and they still haven't launched it. And it's that first bank of clients. And I said, well, you know, where are you kind of like at with your alpha testing and and before you go live and they're like oh no we've done that and I'm like well who did you do it with like did you do with that kind of internally was that with your own internal testers because I think that there's a different way that we should look Mm. at alpha testing and that is a live version of like not perfect 
but done and then so go live with that and you know it's this exclusive invite only you have to sign up so that you can get access to this platform when we kind of go live and have a you know have a plan to go live reasonably quickly after you start doing this like hey do you want to sign up for this for free this is how much kit we're going to give you and then um, I said to them start driving your feedback before you go to market using the customer effort score to find out how good your tech actually was and how easy it is for people to use on top of that use that information in order to help you to develop training small training videos on how to actually use that software or think about how to use that software better when you do go live and you're ready to scale Mm. but i do think you know you need to look at alpha testing one is internally great the software works and it doesn't you know blow up the world that's great Um, but you need to look at it on a market scale as well as to how you can do that and then drive feedback before you go for your big launch Got it. Very interesting. Okay, so are you a workaholic or do you have work life balance? <laughs> um, who would I be speaking about slowing down to speed up if I didn't follow <laughs> the philosophy myself? Um, you know, I guess it's tough. Work inspires me so much and it makes me so happy. But no, I'm not a workaholic and I'm really conscious of that because I know that I can't be a good leader and I know that I can't be a good creator if I don't take a step back. So I do this every Friday. I live in the city, but um, we've got a place about three and a half hours out of the city. Um, My husband and I, we jump in the car on Friday night and we just drive until we get to the farm. And I do not charge it up from Friday night until it gets to Sunday night when I have to figure out what on earth I have to do on Monday. Mm. Um, And I just, you know, no messages, no social, no email, no, oh, maybe I could do this. No, forget it. If your company is going to blow up because you're not doing something on the weekend then you have a bigger, like you've got a big problem on your hands. Yeah, yeah. that shouldn't be reactive. <laughs> Get ahead of that and set yourself up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So no, I'm not a workaholic. I really, um, you know, and it's not easy to have that kind of courage to let, you know, all the messages and the social and that, you know, that validation kind of be at you all the time. It takes courage to turn that off. And, and um, I talk about this a fair bit on panels um, in Australia. And I, you know, I just say, just try it for an hour and see how you feel just stop for an hour just turn your phone off and people say you know I get these great messages saying I was so nervous but I tried it but I was illuminated after I did that I was like able to write down how I was feeling or I was able to come up with four ideas for blogs that I thought would be really really helpful I was able to go into a creative space again and I felt relaxed and that's after like one hour imagine what happens if you do that for a day two days three days well I think I mean I think what happens with a lot of people with most people now because of the inundation of media information entertainment is that we have a million things that are going through our minds at any given moment and it's very hard to consume that in the good old days quote-unquote Things were much more simple. We didn't have so many feeds and streams of information. So, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do to sort of manage all the thoughts and ideas and sort of revelations, contemplations, and sometimes just completely useless thoughts is to look at my existence like an onion. And I can decide how many levels I want to peel back. Because if you start 
contemplating living life instead of living life mm. are you really living life yeah. you know and the last thing that we want to do is to be completely stuck in our head yeah so there's this sort of mantra this kind of visualization that i really like to go back to which is envisioning the cross section of an ocean and this is actually something from transcendental meditation mm. and if you visualize the cross section of an ocean the top of the ocean is waves and it's the current and it's aggressive but if you go deeper down into the ocean, it's the water is still, it's calm, it's darker. The waves are still existing. Yeah. But there's a lot of love, there's a lot of light, there's a lot of meditation, there's a lot of introspection and a lot of peace yeah. within that lower section, knowing that the waves are still existing. Yeah. But at the same time, if we can just live in that moment on the weekends, you know, at the farm, you know, at the beach, with the phone off, with friends, with family, you know, maybe we can be a little bit happier and really get the true benefits of what life is all about, which is to love. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually talking to my friend about this just yesterday and talking about how, um, you know, when you get stuck in your head, you don't find anything new here. Mm -hmm. And um, I meditate a lot and I just find it such an amazing space to go internally because I'm comfortable. I'm really happy with my own thoughts. And, you know, I'm not going to say that they're always amazing because sometimes we like we beat ourselves up. It's like our natural kind of go to to tell ourselves that we're not good enough. But like turning that off for a minute and then just thinking and I explained it like it's like I feel like I'm seeing out of my heart mm. and then the entire flow of information into the brain just completely changes that message changes um, and that beautiful feeling of joy just comes out and it's like and it's radiating mm, that's yeah. lovely that's <laughs> lovely that's inspirational I love that so how can uh, folks find you all right. Give me some web addresses. <laughs> give me some social handles. Cool. So you can find um, us at milkit.com.au, M-I-L-K-I-T.com.au. And dare I say, I'll give you my personal email address, which is alita at milkit.com.au. Got it. And where did you come up with the name? What's, it, what's the background? <laughs> it was that epiphany in the desert. It's like, what am I trying to do here? Like, um, So now today we're MI Academy. and But, you know, Milk It was the original name. And it was just like that epiphany that I had in the desert, which was like, what am I trying to do here? It's like, I'm trying to teach people how to milk it. I'm trying to teach people how to get the most out of what, out of their work, out of their tech, out of everything that they do. That's lovely. I love that. <laughs> Thanks. Thank very you. inspirational. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for your time. Con mucho gusto. Muchas <laughs> gracias. gracias. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Raven. It was great. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much.